it's a much more dramatic issue than most people recognize. We have only five to ten years of carbon budget remaining to stay within one and one-half degrees centigrade. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you won't miss any of our upcoming conversations. We'd also greatly appreciate it if you'd tell your peers about it. In this episode, you'll gain insights on the great strides that the city of Phoenix has made in buying clean energy and the strategies behind those purchases from Nick Brown, City of Phoenix Energy Manager. Nick sat down with our Director of Education Programs, Peter Kelly Dittweiler, at our most recent Renewable Energy Sourcing Forum, and we're thrilled to share their conversation with you. You'll appreciate and relate to Nick's perspective on why his work in the energy sector is so important and meaningful. Here's their conversation. Hi, I'm Peter Kelly Detweiler. I'm Director of Educational Programs for Smart Energy Decisions. And with me today, I have the great pleasure to have Nick Brown, who is the City Energy Manager for Phoenix. And we are going to be talking about greening cities. Phoenix leads the way. That's the title of the conversation. We're having a somewhat of a fireside chat in the heat of Phoenix. What's the temp down there today? It's a really cool day, Peter. It's about 99 for a high. And uh, how high will you get this summer? We've been up to 110 so far. It's not uncommon to have 115, 118, somewhere in there most summers. Wow. So we're definitely going to want to talk about carports in a little bit because that just sounds like a natural segue. They're very popular. Yeah, I I can imagine. I'd be hiding onto one anytime it got above 90. When you and I were talking, I really enjoyed the conversation because you started at like the meta level. What drives you? What's your motivation? And, and then, we, then we moved into what you do in your job. So can you briefly describe for the viewer, what does drive you, Nick? You know, why are you in the job? You could be doing a million other things. Why this one? Peter, we're in a career and a profession where we can really do well by doing good, it seems to me. Solar professionals who are successful could be doing a lot of things. There are thousands of services and products that that we could be pushing through the marketplace. What we're doing, however, pushes good things through the marketplace and also leaves a somewhat more livable planet for our our progeny. So as, as Greta Thunberg has said, we really should act as though we love our children more than all. Well, that certainly makes a lot of sense. It seems like it would be the logical thing for us to do. And so taking that ethos to heart, what sort of a career arc have you had in the renewable space and how did you get to where you are now? A lot of things have changed since I began. I started in 1980, then Governor Bill Clinton's Arkansas Department of Energy as a solar project manager. 
in that department at that time, about 60 of us worked and about 58 of us were in renewable energy. So they were really, really heady days. For a long time, it was a boutique field, and now it's mainstream. So that's gratifying to me. And I think a lot of people who want to work big, think big, perform well, and do important work or now have opportunities in the, the solar industry. If you're mid-career or, or beyond that, as you and I have to admit, confess that we are, you'll remember that Waxman-Markey in 2009 was a cap-and-trade bill, and that would have put renewable energy on a footing where we could really have pushed forward with uh, a very significant build-out, and that, that didn't happen to us. But since then, we've, we've gotten the uh, ITC, the investment tax credit, and a, a few other benefits. And finally, solar energy has come to a space. It's competitive in a lot of places with utility company power in price. Yeah, we have been beneficiaries or having the good fortune that what used to involve a whole lot of sacrifice now makes good economic sense in many cases. When you and I were talking, it struck me that the imperative, this, the carbon budget, you raised that concept, and I was struck by how that manifests itself in your, in your career as well. Could you elucidate a little bit on that? It's a much more dramatic issue than most people recognize, than the general public recognizes. Whether you look at earth system models or integrated assessment models, the picture is we have only five to 10 years of carbon budget remaining to stay within one and one half degrees centigrade of global warming, global warming over pre-industrial times. And that's really, really dramatic. So we've, we've already burned half of what we might have burned by not having a cost on carbon, a price on carbon, 10 years back. And we've only got about five or 10 years now at the rate that we're burning it in order not to exceed this rather dramatic milestone that, that we want to avoid. So I think that we are in a pretty dramatic situation. Over the last few months, we have reduced carbon emissions globally by only about six or seven percent, six or seven or eight percent. That sounds good, but we should recognize that we have not learned to be successful economically with that kind of reduction. So to put that in perspective, we will have to achieve that kind of reduction every year for the next decade in order to meet the target of one and one half degrees or less of global warming. And the reason that we have that target, of course, as you're probably aware, Peter, is that all of the natural catastrophes that have occurred over the past decade from 2010 to 2020 have cost three times more globally than the same kinds of, of catastrophes from 2000 to 2010. So that's already happened just with, with the carbon that's in the air now. It's a pretty important thing, and it's a fairly dire circumstance we find ourselves in. So we are literally burning through our budget, which then sets the stage for what you are doing in the city. I mean, you've been given pretty interesting role there to try and change that arc, the trajectory of the emissions profile of, of the public space in, in Phoenix for the government. So 
what are the things you are doing to affect change with the people on your team and the budget that you're able to get a hold of? What does a day-to-day look like and what projects are you actually undertaking? Well, the city owns many properties across the, the Valley of the Sun. Water services, public works, parks, housing, neighborhood services, meeting facilities, the convention center alone is about 100,000 square feet. And of course, the city's airport, Sky Harbor, is a city property. So all of those facilities stand to benefit from first reduced energy consumption. So we do have an aggressive program for energy efficiency. Our city council has approved for us a $30 million investment in energy efficiency, which really does have to precede renewable energy. So we, we reduce our load first and then we, we move to solar. So that $30 million investment goes into performance contracting, and we're moving aggressively through that. We've got about $10 million of that 30 currently under contract with ESCOs, energy services companies. And so that's the, the kind of precursor to our renewable energy program. We do have a qualified vendors list. That QVL we put out in 2018, that allows us to have five companies in our case who who made that QVL. We go to them over and over for the 2018 through 2022 period so that we don't have to do requests for proposals each time we need to, to develop a new project. That's been a real benefit to us. It streamlines our work and it keeps a lot of admin processes kind of out of the way. The contract development is always extremely lengthy and, and complex. And so it's a good thing for us to have a few contractors that we know are qualified. That's the Q and the QVL. And it puts us kind of on a fast track to accomplish some of these things. Okay, so that works for efficiency and then also for solar as well. You mentioned this pretty interesting program where you were putting solar on a lot of different city properties, carports and other places. Is it the same thing? And can you talk a little bit about that program and how it takes place? We're finally at a point where solar energy can be developed at this price point that's competitive with bypassable costs or the the avoided cost of, of energy that's on our utility bills. To that end, we find the largest facilities. Some of our larger facilities consume four or 5,000 megawatt hours of power per year. So I'm talking about significant sized office facilities, our shop and maintenance facilities, water services, some services out at the airport. Convention center is enormous. So each of those facilities might consume four, five, 6,000 megawatt hours per year. We then begin a process of requesting a quote for a solar carport in a lot of cases. We have about 150 or so buildings and other facilities that have over 100 parking spaces affiliated with them. Shade is a coveted product here in, in the Valley of the Sun. And so it's what Rocky Mountain Institute calls VBEX, Values Beyond Energy Conservation. And so those are the ones that we start with. And we do those through either a power purchase agreement, which is pretty straightforward. The utility then is APS, for example, is required by the Corporation Commission to provide us certain allowances for for the avoided energy. And we can then pay the power purchase agreement from those savings. 
And so that's a no-cost project for us. Similarly, we can do a lease agreement, have contractors come into our facility, sign a lease such that they would own a solar carport in our parking lot, and we would pay that over time as a lease. It functions very similarly to a power purchase agreement. It's just a little bit different financial mechanism. Neither of those requires front-end costs, and we can do those one after another. So we're limited in some ways only by the uh, development team and the staffing to, to really manage the, these projects as, as they're developed. So a three-part question. How long have you been there? How big are the projects typically, and how many have you had installed so far? I've been uh, in this role for a year and a half now. It's been one of the most fulfilling roles in my career, so I feel very, very fortunate. Our average projects are in the half megawatt to one megawatt range. Again, these are facilities that consume a lot of energy. Our waste transfer stations, for example, a lot of heavy equipment, and so they consume a lot of energy. Those are naturals for for these kinds of projects. We put solar on libraries, museums, city hall, our other office towers downtown. So we have a variety of kinds of projects, and they mostly do range from one half to one megawatt. So we've currently got about 10 megawatts in place. Some of that happened before I arrived. And we've done about three or four megawatts since my arrival. We have about six projects that are currently underway and they're staggered so that I hope they don't all land at one time. But there's an awful lot of work. We've got 57 fire stations. Only three of them have solar so far. So I anticipate that we'll see rooftop and carport parking at most of those eventually. We've got 10 police precincts. Each of those is ripe for for the very same kind of work, on and on and on. We're currently developing one at our police training academy. That'll be one megawatt of of solar. So I think overall we have the capacity or, or the potential for 10 or 15 megawatts additional of what we'd broadly call distributed solar energy in city operations. I would think that especially with the carport projects, the workers in those facilities must give you a literally a warm welcome. Uh, to get a place where they can park their car in the shade, they must be thrilled. Not very many office workers are heroes, but uh, we get treated like heroes by, <laughs> by folks who, who work in our facilities and, and go in every day. That's excellent. You also mentioned in our conversation before that there were some larger projects that you were looking at out, out into the future that are not on parking lots or about bigger utility scale types of, of approaches because you have so much energy you need to offset. What does that look like, Nick? Our consumption is immense. So we consume about 650 gigawatt hours per year of energy. So let that settle in for a minute. 650,000 megawatt hours a year at our municipal operations. Because of that, distributed solar really won't get us where we need to be. There just aren't enough parking lots and, and rooftops. We will need something in the range of 300 megawatts of, of solar overall to get to climate neutrality by 2030 or so. And so that's a steep hill to climb. Additionally, some of our power comes from Arizona Public Service. 
Some of our power comes from Salt River Project. So we will have to split that between the two. Peter, we've got a real challenge, as everyone in the Western Interconnect has, with not having an RTO, a regional transmission organization, to do balancing and firming for renewable energy projects. That's a problem because it falls then to the utilities to do that. The transmission line owners, and in our case, and in many cases across the West, that is uh, utilities themselves. They have to do their own balancing and firming, overnight firming and, and cloudy day firming for solar projects. That's costly. It's not just complicated. Uh, it's costly. So this is a real challenge for those of us who are in the, the Intermountain West. Similarly, uh, over in the Southeast, the Southeast has an enormous area that's not covered by regional transmission organizations. And in those areas, we're also kind of at the mercy of electric utility companies to provide us what they're willing and able to provide. It's not a barrier, but it's a challenge. I want to ask you one or two final questions while we wrap this one. One, I know you're on the board of what is it, Salt River Project. So Correct. that must right. give you a unique vantage in terms of understanding the logic of how to get things done. For those of you, if you can talk a little bit about that, and then for, for people who don't have that unique superpower, if it will, what, what sort of advice would you give to other cities who are looking at these same sorts of decarbonization efforts and solar projects, et cetera? What can you suggest they should be thinking about? Well, there are a couple of keys. One of them is understanding and participating in and being conversant with integrated resource planning. So IRP processes are, I think, common to almost every utility. It's a process in which the planning process determines what a likely mix of different kinds of power supply will be for the next five or 10 years. It determines which power stations are likely to carry the base load and the peak load. And, and so these are things that utilities wrestle with. They're complex. And after decisions have been made in an IRP process, it really does determine how that utility moves to provide power in their service area over the next few years. This means then that those of us who want more renewable energy development for our corporations, for our municipalities, we've really got to understand how to integrate with those patterns and processes in order to have a mutual success between developers and buyers who seek to develop new significant and utility scale systems and the utilities that eventually will have to host them. So it's not something that can be figured out with a few meetings. It's not something that utility executives are always anxious to enter into, but it is something I think that increasingly uh, utilities across the board. So that's boards and, and executives, managers, and technologists will have to develop a, a real keen capacity for integrating, again, uh, an integrated resource planning mm -hmm. process into their plans 
in ways that 10 or 15 years ago seemed not to be necessary at all. Unfortunately, we have to cut it short here. 20 minutes is, is way too short to do justice to such a complex topic, but I think it sounds like your advice is do your homework, really understand the logic of the space you're trying to integrate into. And I thank you so much for your time and your insights. And the next time I fly through Phoenix and drive around, I'm going to be looking for carports and know that one of those solar carports at least has your name on it. So thank you so much, Nick. And I look forward to meeting you in the real world. Please let me host you when you get here, Peter. And thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Nick, for sharing your drive, strategy, and process with us. And thanks to both Peter and Nick for a great conversation. Like Peter summed up at the end of the conversation, do your homework and really understand the logic of the space you're integrating into. It's great advice. To our listeners, thanks for engaging with our content and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers in the industry about it. And to learn about how you can become a part of the next edition of our Renewable Energy Sourcing Forum, taking place December 7 through 11, visit our website, smartenergydecisions.com, or email Lisa Carroll, our event operations director, at lisa at smartenergydecisions.com. You can also find her email in our show notes. We're excited about sharing conversations with leaders of the energy transition in this podcast, on our website, and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.